Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in, wherever you are around the world, the UK, etc. Well, that's it, isn't it? Anyway, look, thank you for uh, joining in. I think I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and I think we're all going to enjoy our uh, conversation we've got today. As you all know, we've been delving deep into the uh, mysteries of the modern Conservative Party and we've approached it in all kinds of different ways in recent months. But in a way, we've got today the guru on the Conservative Party at every level, from the membership, which is an important dimension, uh, to the Parliamentary Party, to the Cabinets and the Prime Ministers. It's Tim Bale, whose latest book is The Conservative Party After Brexit, with the appropriate subtitle, Turmoil and Transformation. And uh, it is fascinating both as a narrative, of course it reads like a thriller on one level, because what has happened since that Brexit referendum is utterly compelling as a drama, but of course it delves much deeper than that. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. Could I begin by asking you to reflect on the present, really? Because your book, actually, you, you, you get to Sunak. You must have had to update it with a sort of nightmarish frequency, given the number of prime ministers that have ruled Britain recently. Um, but it seems to me that this parliamentary party, which you chronicle and observe several times in the books, has been increasingly less deferential to leaders and harder to govern. Remains as hard to govern for Sunak now as for Theresa May, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, uh, with the Braverman dramas, the various conferences, which I know you've reflected on as well. Um, is that your view, that we are still witnessing a parliamentary party and the wider Tory party being as insurrectionary as ever, really? I think things have calmed down a little bit, I have to say, and I think that's partly the discipline imposed by the upcoming election. I think there's always a tendency um, for politicians to feel they can let loose midterm. Um, but as the election approaches, I think they do believe in that old saw that divided parties lose elections. Uh, and I think that has, to some extent, meant that uh, the mass of Tory MPs probably uh, want to let Rishi Sunak get on with it and cross their fingers. I think you can see that in the uh, rebellion or the rather disappointing in some ways rebellion that we saw over the Windsor framework when only 22 Conservative MPs actually went against the government line, including Liz Truss and, and Boris Johnson. Um, but uh, as you say, there are still problems. And I think you know there are still real points of neuralgia, if you like, and immigration uh, is clearly one of them. Uh, I think taxes will be another, uh, particularly if Jeremy Hunt doesn't manage to make tax cuts as we move even closer to that general election. He will do, though, won't he? I mean, th they will have to go into that election with tax cuts, whether it is a coherent policy, given uh, Sunak's fiscal conservatism is another question. But they have no choice but to announce tax cuts in a pre-election budget or perhaps before then. Well, it's difficult to imagine that they won't, I agree, because they just haven't got very much else in their locker, uh, really. I don't think the economy is going to recover in quite the same way as they hoped it would. Uh, I'm not sure inflation will come down either in the way that Rishi Sunak seemed to assume uh, was the case. 
clearly, they are worried, I think, about those so-called blue wall voters. They're more sort of traditional affluent Tory voters uh, in the, the southern half of the country uh, for whom Tory economics, if you like, and a, and a smaller state and lower taxes are still quite uh, attractive. And, and I guess that will be a way of, of pulling them back in. And I guess they will also hope that if they can reduce particularly income tax or, or maybe national insurance, that they can pull back some of those red wall voters as well. Um, it's not simply the case that tax cuts go down in, well in the blue wall uh, and uh, other things are more important to the red wall. I think you know there's a, an extent to which everyone likes tax cuts, whether or not they're affordable, as you say, in the a question. I want to contextualise this uh, in a moment, uh, beginning where your book begins. But can I just, uh, I thought we'd be in virtual total agreement in this interview, but I disagree with you about the current mood. It seems to me that when you have a Home Secretary addressing a conference, uh, which sort of at the very least implies opposition to existing government policy on immigration, when you have a former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, briefing that he will get Sunak unless Sunak starts cooperating with him over his concerns about Partygate implications and all the rest of it. This is still a party that seems to almost wallows the wrong word, but is is just indisciplined, where discipline was the great weapon of the Tory party up to a point, and I want to explore when that was. Um, but you, you, you detect a calmer mood. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. Clearly, you know, Boris Johnson, Suella Braverman are real problems for Rishi Sunak. Uh, I think what I'd point to is the number of Tory MPs who are prepared to go into battle um, for them. Um, clearly, there are some and they are, um, you know, sort of 24-7 social media celebrities like Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, increasingly Miriam Cates, for example, you know, Stoke MP Jonathan Gullis. Uh, but I, I think we need to be careful before we see, you know, a, a handful of loudmouths, if you like, <laughs> uh, representing the, the entire parliamentary Conservative Party. I mean, I think if you look at some of the stuff that we occasionally see, for example, released from WhatsApp groups, there are a lot of Conservative MPs who are fed up to the back teeth of those people and, and would rather they just pipe down. Yeah, it would be quite an achievement for Sunak if he does manage to quieten them down and impose a discipline in the build-up to an election. Uh, let's see, I mean, John Major, it's very interesting, the build-up to 97, they quietened down a bit, but there was still a moodiness around that the voters detected. But anyway, that's uh, that, that's perhaps for later in our conversation. Let's now begin at the beginning of your book, where you mischievously pose uh, a, a counter-narrative, which is you place George Osborne as Prime Minister, um, contemplating who his successor might be, and uh, you mischievously, again, suggest Matt Hancock might be the figure he turns to uh, to succeed him. And the reason you do this is partly because it's a bit of fun, but also you suggest that it could have all been so different if Remain had won that Brexit referendum, uh, Osborne could well have been Prime Minister and, and a different course would have been set, um, which again is interesting because I think both you and I see a pattern in a way in the Conservative Parliamentary Party that it's not really wholly by chance that the turbulent events of recent years were unleashed. But perhaps you think it is, that chance plays a much bigger factor in all of this than um, deeper underlying tides of history. 
Well, no, I mean, I think contingency is important, but it's clearly not everything. And and you're right, uh, you know, that that was to some extent a bit of fun, but it was trying to make a serious point about contingency. But there are clearly some underlying structural problems that the Conservative Party has, particularly in terms of its discipline uh, within Parliament. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier, there's been this decline of deference, and it's been ongoing, really, probably since the, the mid-1970s, when, you know, you first began to get rebellions uh, uh, featuring. And then, of course, you know, the 1980s and 1990s um, saw a real upsurge in that. Uh, and I think that has, to some extent, been amplified by um, 24-7 um, media and its demand, you know, to fill airtime, uh, and uh, Tory MPs being willing to <laughs> supply that demand. Uh, it also, I think you know, social media plays a, a part in that. So that I think, whereas we used to say, well, you know, some MPs who don't get promoted uh, have an alternative route by, for example, getting involved in select committees, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They now have an even more obvious and quicker route to profile, which is is via the media and via social media. And in order you know, to get that profile, I think one of the things that they do is, is criticise the, the leadership. Uh, and that, I think, does destabilise the party. But it's not just to do with that. I mean, you, you can point to the fact that David Cameron became leader after just four years in Parliament. And I think that probably has sent a signal to many people in the Conservative Party who you know, have leadership ambitions themselves and don't necessarily think they need a, a record, if you like, of substantive achievement, either in office or, or in parliament or in other walks of life, in order to um, progress within the party and then get very frustrated uh, when they don't. And I think you could also point to the fact that, of course, David Cameron didn't win that election in 2010. He had to go into coalition with the Liberal Democrats. Uh, and that meant uh, there were far fewer jobs um, for people on the back benches, including some who'd expected to get a job. And that led to a great deal of frustration. And I think there is a degree to which the pressure on uh, Brexit and to hold a referendum was to some extent a function of that frustration. Europe and Brexit, of course, runs through uh, your uh, latest book. And it is an un questionably a big factor in the changing nature of the parliamentary party and I take your point about the attraction of social media mainstream media and you can get a job on GB news quite easily if you're one of the rebels and so on um, but it seems to me again something deeper is going on here in that the hardline Brexiteers who are a running theme in your book as you look at how prime ministers struggled to adapt to Brexit, um, the biggest factor of all is that they meant it. They, they, they absolutely were committed to a vision of Brexit, although ill-defined in practice. Um, and, and that was a driving force. The ERG group, yes, they loved becoming these powerful insurrectionary figures and famous on the media. But they kind of believed it as well, didn't they? And, and, and therefore had this connection with the membership, who also, in their own way, ached for this Brexit to be delivered. Yes, I mean, I think you know you can't play down the fact that these guys, uh, you know, some of the women are, you know, are uh, and were ideologically committed uh, to a Brexit and a, a very hard Brexit. I mean, you can, I think, uh, question 
the extent to which Theresa May, by talking about uh, a no-deal Brexit, probably spurred them on. Um, and, and I do you know, suggest in the book that had she not done that, I think she might be able to have sold them a slightly different Brexit from the, the one we got and possibly even got her, her deal through. But I guess that's another uh, great what if. I mean, I think this connection with the membership is really interesting. Um, as you say, you know, we are in a position to talk about the membership because we, we've done surveys of, of the party membership uh, as we've done surveys of, of the memberships of other parties. And what's very interesting is when we did surveys of, of the, the grassroots Tories just after the 2015 election and we asked them, you know, what they were going to vote in the referendum, the plurality, and I think it may even have been a majority of them, said that they'd wait to see what David Cameron came back with before making up their minds. And then four years later, you get a, a, a poll of the Conservative Party membership by YouGov saying that you know they, they would prefer to see the breakup of the union and even the Conservative Party uh, rather than see um, Britain fail to leave. So something went on there in the membership. And I think that does... I think, speak to the influence of what I call the celebrity Brexiteers. I've already mentioned um, some of them. Uh, I think they did help to move the membership. And then, of course, the membership, to some extent, helped to move other MPs uh, as well. So there is this sort of symbiotic uh, relationship, if you like, between between those uh, ERG members, especially the more high-profile ones, and, uh, and the membership and, and the way that the mood of the membership shifted and made it obviously much more difficult, I think, for um, Theresa May and to some extent Boris Johnson possibly and Rishi Sunak. It's such an important dance, this, isn't it, between mm. the party membership and the MPs and, of course, those at the very top of the party and one that political journalists at Westminster can miss to some extent because we are so focused on the internal battles within a parliamentary party or the cabinet or whatever, but there is the membership also. As you say, the celebrity MPs can have an impact on the membership, but then the membership in hardening their view has an impact on the MPs. Yes, I think I think that's absolutely right. And and I mean, there is an irony in that the membership of, um, you know, any big political party in this country that has the least formal influence over policy one can argue possibly has had the most <laughs> informal influence uh, over policy uh, in in the last few years and that's that's partly obviously uh, a long-term phenomenon in the sense that these people are still in charge of selecting Tory MPs. And because of that, there has been uh, a kind of disappearance of the sort of moderate, if you like, centre-left of the Conservative Party and certainly the Europhile uh, part of the Conservative Party as generations of MPs have been replaced and, and members have selected more you know, hardline Eurosceptics as time has gone on. Um, but it's also, of course, because William Hay gave those members the right to select the leader and therefore anyone jockeying for position uh, in the Conservative Party, and uh, there are an awful lot of MPs who are continually doing that, uh, always have now one eye on, on the membership. And if the membership have, has a particularly, uh, you know, for want of a better word, extreme view on, a, on an issue, it is very tempting, I think, for, for the ambitious MP uh, to, to play to that. You referred to Theresa May, and uh, what I found fascinating with your book is, in a way, I found that 
the most interesting element because it, it seems like ancient history. We forget that she was prime minister until July 2019. And I do think it is really interesting. And I had forgotten, actually, the, the degree to which her early moves on Brexit defined so much of what followed. You mentioned the no deal. She signed Article is it what was it Article fifty, which mm-hmm. defined the timetable of Brexit before she knew what kind of Brexit she wanted, um, and then discovered. I think well, we're reading your book the nightmarish implications for Northern Ireland. I don't think she'd given it much thought in that early phase. I mean, she, she's now seen perhaps correctly as the figure with greater conscientious integrity of the. Johnson Truss May trio. But these were big, big missteps, weren't they? Yes, I, I think you're right. And uh, and in a way, you know, it plays into what um, social scientists, political scientists call, you know, path dependence in the sense that you, <laughs> by making a decision uh, early on, um, you, you lock in a, a course uh, of action that, that, that actually limits what you can then do later. And I, I think the uh, the speech she made actually in, in 2016 to the Conservative Party conference where, to all intents and purposes, I think to to anyone listening carefully, she set the government on the road to a hard Brexit, so leaving the single market and then leaving the customs union. Um, uh, and she did that without very much thought, as you, you quite rightly say, about the, the implications uh, for that. But once she'd done it, um, there was no going back, really. And, and uh, we, you know, I use an interview in the, in the book with Philip Hammond, the, the chancellor, which you, you may remember. He hadn't been consulted on that speech at all. It was probably written um, by, by Nick Timothy for, for the most part. And he just sat there, you know, with, a, as he says, a rictus grin on his face, knowing that TV cameras would be you know, looking for his every reaction and then had to fly immediately to, to Washington. And by the time he got to Washington, he was having to uh, reassure the markets about sterling because sterling was, was dropping like a stone. Uh, so, so, so the degree of, of consultation of cabinet ministers, and, and I guess this goes back to something that Anthony Seldon was talking about, about Boris Johnson, um, was, was minimal. But it's not just Boris Johnson. I mean, you know, I, I don't need to tell you or your, or your listeners, Steve, that actually the, the decline of cabinet government has been going on a lot longer than that. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. Such, I interviewed uh, Nick Timothy for this podcast a few months ago and asked him, it was more in the context of his plans for quite a lot of state intervention, uh, but also in the context of Brexit, whether Theresa May believed it, because, I mean, he was a huge influence on her. And he admitted he wasn't entirely sure. And what is absolutely clear about Brexit is that, as you say, that speech was written largely by Nick Timothy, and your book chronicles Hammond's response. Um, I mean, Anthony Seldon tells us Johnson wasn't convinced about Brexit. We all knew that, Uh, used it as a tool to get to number 10. And here was the first of these three prime ministers setting a course which she probably didn't wholly believe herself. 
No, I, I think that's right. And I think also one would have to say about Theresa May is that she underestimated the, her power, really, to, to set the agenda then and her power over the, the, the parliamentary party. I mean, she was literally the last candidate left standing in that leadership contest. There was no one else. I think, you know, a stronger leader could have given a, a, a stronger steer. Now, clearly, you know, she had a problem in the sense that she had been a Remainer, albeit a reluctant one. So she was trying to prove, as it were, to, to leavers that, you know, she would deliver Brexit. But I, I think, you know, there were still um, avenues open to her. I think the, the, the other problem with Theresa May, to be honest, was that she spent a long time being Home Secretary and partly as a result of that saw the Brexit referendum result very much through the prism of immigration. And therefore, you know, the logic for her was, well, if it was all about immigration, then we have to leave the single market. Uh, and therefore, if we leave the single market, uh, you know, that is a hard Brexit uh, and that's non-negotiable. So, I mean, I, I can understand why she did it, but I think a degree of, you know, pausing, thinking, wondering, you know, about the kind of Brexit that would have got the 48% um, or at least some of that 48% on side would have been a better uh, course of action for her. Yeah, I, I, I'm very tempted to spend a lot of time on Boris Johnson, but we interviewed Anthony Selden very recently about his book on Johnson. Uh, you chronicle the extraordinary chaos, really. Uh, and, and again, Brexit is the reason he rose to the top, largely. Could we, because we've got limited time, move on to the extraordinary leadership contest of last summer between Truss and Sunak? Because I think, in a way, this pulls together a lot of themes in your book. Um, here was a party membership being offered Sunak, who is a committed Thatcherite. His first move was to go to Grantham and worship at the a statue of Margaret Thatcher in, in Grantham. And yet the membership went for Truss. And what do you think this tells us about the modern Conservative Party? Well, I, I do think it tells us that the reforms that William Hague introduced um, in, in you know, 1997-98 have destabilised the party. I mean, Personally, I would rather in any political party that the choice of leader, particularly if they've got a large parliamentary contingent, was left to MPs. I think they are in a much better position to judge who uh, would do the job best. And it was very clear from that leadership contest that actually, uh, although Rishi Sunak wasn't particularly um, popular himself, um, there was very little confidence that, that the Liz Truss could do it. But if you look at the way that that leadership contest, you know, played out in in the country, as it were, you know, where, where they all went round doing uh, hustings, um, you know, hosted, uh, I think sometimes by Ian Dale uh, and others. Um, I mean, you, you had a, a ridiculous competition, really, whereby you know they were they were both to some extent appealing to the most extreme instincts uh, of the membership in order to gain a, a victory and uh, uh, over the other the candidate so uh, you know you had Liz Truss promising an impossibilist i think uh, economic policy which most experts agreed you know wouldn't fly and of course we found out that that, that was indeed the case and you had Rishi Sunak talking uh, about culture war topics which was rather surprising given that he never said that much about those 
those things before. And also, you know, promising to, to rip up um, EU legislation. Um, and we've seen that that's impossible as well. So, I mean, I, I think what, what we saw really is, A, that the way that the leadership is elected now in the Conservative Party has radically destabilised that party. Uh, and B, it does encourage the candidates in any leadership contest to move towards positions which simply aren't practical. And when you think about the way that the Conservative Party for decades, possibly even centuries, has sold itself as you know the pragmatic party, I think that does represent a very, very big move away from its past. Yeah, and we've had an example of it recently where Sunak pledged in the leadership contest to burn all the EU regulations in that single bill. And of course, he's had to go back on it. It would have caused total chaos. But it does mm. give the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg the uh, political armory to say, well, look, he lied. But the, d- the dynamic of these leadership contests are really interesting. Do you think there is any chance uh, that the leadership rules, let's stick to the Conservative Party, because that's what we're exploring today, obviously applies to Labour too, could be changed so that only MPs... I can't see how... Any leader tells its membership, we don't think you're up to it, uh, <laughs> and, and changes the rules. Or, no, I, I think you're right. And with my comparative politics hat on, I mean, I can say that there is no instance uh, of a party in any liberal democracy having democratised leadership selection, going back on it, that, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, and it's very, very difficult to, to do anything about it. If parties, you know, want to, to mitigate the effect of that, all they can do is hope for a more moderate, more representative membership. But that's quite difficult now uh, as well. I mean, uh, as memberships shrink, you can argue, and particularly in the Conservative Party, perhaps their views have become rather more extreme. Although you can, I think, overstate the extent to which party members are radicals or, or are extreme. Uh, you know, I think it is a real problem for the Conservative Party in particular, but but parties more generally, and we saw it with Corbyn. However, the Labour membership that elected Corbyn also elected Keir Starmer. Um, so it, it's not impossible, if you like, for members who are, you know, fairly radical, at least compared to voters, to choose relatively um, centrist figures. Although, of course, when we look at Keir Starmer, and I know we're talking about the Conservative Party here, he did make an awful lot of promises to that membership, which he's now ripping up. Yeah, yeah. And and you can understand the anger that some of them feel from the Labour side as reflected in Owen Jones's columns and so on. And, and, and Rhys Mark, as I say, has gone for Sunak. But th- this has big implications because if, and I know it's your view that the, ch- well, you've said it in this interview amongst in, in many other bits, that the, the change of those leadership rules has changed the Conservative Party uh, and those rules will not be uh, reversed, we are seeing a new kind of Conservative Party that is a permanent feature. Uh, there will not be a return to the uh, so-called one-nation pragmatic conservatism when leaders either emerged, in inverted commas, or were voted for by the parliamentary party. Now, this has an immediate implication, obviously, if the Conservatives lose the next election. Is it your assumption with your specialist knowledge of that membership and following the Tory party in its twists and turns at Westminster, that that leadership contest in the context of defeat in 2024 will be rooted again like the one last summer on the right? Yes. I mean, I I really can't see any alternative to that. I mean, if you look at the potential contenders, it's very difficult to 
get away from the uh, assumption that whoever enters that contest is going to have to promise the membership all sorts of things, including possibly um, withdrawal from the the European Convention on on Human Rights. Uh, so you know, we we could see an even more you know radical right wing populist and um, conservative party emerge from that. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily a betting person, but it would seem to me that you know when people talk about Kemi Badenoch being the favourite, I, I think that is probably right. Um, I mean, you you will get some people who perhaps entered the previous leadership contest, like Tom Tugendhat, claiming you know they're from the sort of One Nation um, side of the of the party, but uh, that's not really how these kind of post defeat leadership elections normally work out for the Conservatives. And indeed, more generally, if we look back, for example, to, to 1997, we see that the Conservative Party then you know, headed for the ideological hills, if you like, uh, for a few years before um, you know, David Cameron managed to, to, to pull it back, not necessarily into the centre, but at least into a kind of more liberal position. So yes, I mean I would fully expect that the the transformation I talk about in the book, which is, you know, from a mainstream centre right party to becoming what I call an airsats populist radical right party, um won't necessarily be you know permanent for all the ages, but uh, I think will be ongoing um, if the Conservatives lose. Uh, but on the other hand, even if the Conservatives manage to pull off an unexpected victory, uh, they will do so having moved even under Rishi Sunak, I think, to the to the populist radical right. Um, you know, with the stop the boats rhetoric, et cetera, et cetera, um, which will, you know, further reinforce, if you like, the the tendency that we've been talking about. Yeah, I know this is, you and I have discussed this many times. This ubiquitous term centrist is applied inappropriately, isn't it? Often within the Conservative Party. Uh, during that summer leadership contest, some said the centrist Rishi Sunak versus the right wing Liz Truss. Uh, Rishi Sunak wouldn't even describe himself as that, I think, would he? I mean, he says he's a fiscal conservative Thatcherite. Um, yes, absolutely. And I mean, you, you just saw a contest between two varieties of Thatcherism, yeah, uh, to, yeah. to be honest, you know, the fiscally conservative one and the tax cutting one. Uh, and I think, you know, it, if you look at the Conservative Party more generally, although you know people like to carve it up and talk about various factions, uh, I actually think that the vast majority of Conservative MPs are what I would you know um, call bog standard Thatcherites. <laughs> I don't think there is really a left left in the Conservative Party uh, anymore, uh, and so I, I do think you know that the uh, some of the the change that the book um, tries to trace is probably permanent. But having said that, I think elections to some extent, as we've seen in the Labour Party, um, do impose lessons on political parties. They don't necessarily learn them straight away. It can take a, a term or two you know, in the wilderness before they realise that actually they do have to move towards the electorate rather yeah. than, if you yeah. like, their activists and their own more extreme MPs. I think, again, one thing the political journalists forget, you don't because you follow the moods of the membership very closely, but is that party members do hate losing elections. You know, it depresses them. They give up all this time. And if they keep on losing, yeah. th they do reflect on the yes, implications I think, I, of I think, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and you know, and, and you, that, I think, is, in some senses, proved by what happened to, to Labour after 2019. You know, it wasn't as if there was suddenly a new membership that elected Keir Starmer. Uh, the same people who were, you know, shouting, oh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, and lauding him quite quickly afterwards um, decided that they wanted a, a rather more kind of reassuring figure and didn't go for anyone that Jeremy Corbyn um, had effectively endorsed. Mm -hmm. 
could I finally ask, uh, and I know predictions are just pointless, really, but um, do, do you assume that this party you've chronicled in great detail in the context of government will be in opposition uh, after the election, assuming it's the autumn of next year or May of next year? Yeah, I mean, uh, for all that, you know, the book talks about contingency and talks about personality. In the end, I do think fundamentals are very important. And, you know, uh, I think the economy is stupid is a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. And and it's very difficult to imagine that the government getting the degree of growth and the degree of progress on uh, real wages that, that normally help governments uh, win elections. Uh, and I think also the state of public services makes a difference as well. And for all that, you know, we we talk uh, about politics being determined, you know, by by values rather than uh, by economics or by competence. Uh, competence as well as economics does still play, uh, I think, a very important role for for many voters. And I think that the chaos that went on under Boris Johnson and indeed Liz Truss, while it might be mitigated a little bit by Rishi Sunak, uh, it's not going to be forgotten by by voters. Uh, it's not quite the degree of damage to the Conservative brand that was done, for example, by Black Wednesday back in the early 1990s. But I, I think you know something pretty and crucial happened to people's views of the Conservative Party in the Truss era, and indeed, you know, in the, in the Johnson era, which I think it will be very, very difficult for Rishi Sunak to patch up completely. Well, Tim Bale, I'm very grateful that you kindly listened to this podcast. Uh, we try and make sense of it all on this podcast, and the Conservative Party after Brexit, turmoil and transformation is definitely on our reading list because it it, it adds so much context and depth. Thanks so much for uh, joining us uh, today. Uh, and reflecting on this just mind-blowing phase of British politics. Thanks very much for having me, Steve. And thank you all for uh, listening. As ever, when we have these conversations, I think, oh, yeah, there are a thousand issues arising from them, and we need to gather together very soon to explore at least some of them. Thanks for listening. See you all again soon. Bye. Bye.